Last week we did begin our study of Isaiah 40 through 55. Why are we only doing a section of Isaiah? If not, we would be in this book for five years. So we felt like it's important to chop it off, cover a section, and we can come back to other sections uh, years down the road. And last week, we kind of looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 40, which gave a lot of background about what was happening within the life of Israel. We learned that they were in a season of uncertainty. This was an uncertainty regarding their future as a nation, but also regarding their faith in Yahweh. Would he still be faithful to a people that were cast out of their homeland into exile in Babylon? They were questioning, is God going to remain faithful to us in spite of our sin? And verses 1 through 11 last week answered the question, yes, he will remain faithful. And Isaiah answers it by reminding them that God is the faithful, covenant-working God. And he always remains faithful to his word, and he always promises to shepherd his people. And today, we're going to be answering the question, it's not that God will provide for Israel, but can he provide for Israel? In other words, does he have the power to do so? What type of God is he? So listen to how Isaiah tells us the answer to this question, beginning in verse 12 of Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness." Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? 
Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is what God, through Isaiah, tells the people of Israel as they are in Babylon, wondering, can God deliver us from these circumstances? Is he strong enough? Is he powerful enough? Is he truly all-knowing? Can we trust his attributes? And really, I could sit down today, and God's word would be enough. He answers the question, in this passage. And as we work our way through this chapter, we are reminded that he does, in fact, care for Israel, and he can, in fact, take care of them based on four things from this text. Number one, God's self-existence. Number two, his authority over the nations. Number three, the futility of idols. And then number four, his transcendence over creation. So his self-existence, his authority over the nations, the futility of idols, and his transcendence over creation. Number one, God's self-existence. The very first words of the Bible begin with an argument for God's self-existence. In the beginning, God. No rational proof, scripturally, is needed to conclude that God is the creator of the universe and that even before he began his work of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, he existed. He has always been. He not only existed in Genesis 1 or before Genesis 1 and 2, but he existed perfectly in perfect fellowship with his son and his spirit. We have no evidence from Scripture that God's work of creation was a result of him lacking anything. He did not lack fellowship. He was not discontent or unpeaceful or unjoyous. Creation was, in fact, a free act of God, meaning it was not necessary that he create the world. So when we begin to think about him creating us, we realize what a gift of grace He actually showed toward us by creating us. The sun that lights up the sky. The moon that penetrates the darkness. The wild beasts that roam the earth. The fish that swim in the sea. The rainbows that remind us of God's covenant with Noah are all acts of God's grace towards us. Our mere existence on this planet was not out of God's necessity, but out of his freedom and his love and his grace toward us. And in verses 12 through 14, we are reminded of God's self-existence and our part in that creation. We are not able, the text says, 
to measure the waters in the hollow of his hand. Roughly 71% of the earth's surface, as you know, is covered with water. And 96.5% of that water is held in the oceans. If all of the earth's water, that would be oceans, rivers, lakes, glaciers, ice caps, groundwater, water in the atmosphere. If all of the earth's water was put into a sphere, its diameter would be 860 miles. That is the distance from Salt Lake City to Topeka, Kansas. Which, by the way, that's the capital of Kansas. You should know that. If all of the Earth's water was dumped on the continental United States, not only would it cover the entire land, it would be 107 miles deep. We cannot grasp God's largeness and his vastness. We can't grasp the dust of the earth or comprehend the vastness of the mountains and the hills. And Isaiah goes on to talk about God's nature. God did not consult with us, nor did we help him in any way understand himself. He didn't derive his attributes from our suggestions. We were not the one who taught him, Isaiah says, about justice or knowledge or understanding. Rather, he is the one who reveals these things to us. We only love, as John tells us, why? Because he first loved us. We only comprehend grace and mercy because he extended grace and mercy to us. Theology is not the study of humans informing God who he is. Theology is the study of God showing us who he is. And he is fully understanding in his nature. If you have ever wondered if God understands what you are experiencing as a human being, if you have ever wondered if God understands how difficult your circumstances are in life, let me assure you, he does. Because he is fully understanding. So Isaiah's first encouragement to the people who are wondering if God is actually able to be faithful to them amidst their circumstances in exile, the first encouragement to them is that God will remain faithful to them because he's not dependent on Israel for his being. He has always existed. He goes on to illustrate this point through showing us that God also has authority over the nations. Remember the historical context of Isaiah's prophecy. The Assyrians were a thorn in the side of Israel. And after Israel is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the Assyrians come in in 722 BC and they destroy Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom ceases to exist. And as The Assyrians were getting ready to invade the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah, the great king, cries out in Isaiah 38, 16. He's he's crying out to God. He wants help. And God tells him this. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. Hezekiah saw God provide for his people and exercise his authority over the nations. But one chapter later, as we said last week, in Isaiah 39, he still forms an alliance with Babylon. He doesn't trust that God will actually provide for the people. 
And this decision that Hezekiah makes to form an alliance with Babylon is the final straw which eventually leads to the southern kingdom being invaded, not by Assyria, but by Babylon. And in 597 and 586, two separate groups of Israelites are marched out of Jerusalem, sent into exile in Babylon, and the temple is destroyed. Israel needs to remember in this moment that any power that the Assyrians had or that the Babylonians had comes ultimately from God himself. He is the one with authority over all of the nations. Do you know what a drop of water in a bucket looks like? Allow me to show you. I normally don't do illustrations like this. However, I think you might want to know this is how God views the nations of the entire world. Are you ready? Drop, bucket. Oops, that was way too much. <laughs> Let me try that again. Drop, bucket. There we go. You see the point here? This is a ridiculous image that Isaiah uses in this passage to show us how much authority God has over the nations. They are like a drop in a bucket compared to him. We currently have in our world today 295 sovereign nations. That's incorrect. 195 sovereign nations. And this is the image used to describe what they are like before God. Do we really fear, brothers and sisters, any earthly nations? We could take the three largest armies in the world today, China, India, and the United States, and combine all of their personnel, all of their technology, all of their financial resources. God could sneeze and they would be obliterated. Now, obviously, we know God in spirit doesn't sneeze. But stay with the image. Isaiah says here to these people who are wondering, can anyone overcome the great nation of Babylon? He tells them they are nothing before God. They are like dust on a scale. Lebanon is used in verse 16 to show that God is so great that the many cedar trees of this country, which were used throughout the Old Testament oftentimes to build very important structures like the temple, all of these cedar trees of the country of Lebanon could not provide enough wood to offer a suitable sacrifice to God. Nor could the number of animals be offered to worship God in the fullness of his splendor and might. Take every single Old Testament offering that any Old Testament saint made before God. And the entire accumulation of those animals could still not atone for the sins of the people. There was somebody who came later who perfectly fulfilled that sacrifice. God has authority over all of the rulers of this world. Even the great king Nebuchadnezzar who ruled in Babylon. If you read Daniel, you know this well. That there is a prophecy that is brought before Nebuchadnezzar about what will happen to him. And here's what we read in Daniel chapter 4, verse 33. 
Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. As soon as God spoke and said Nebuchadnezzar's reign is coming to an end, he became a madman. This is who Israel feared. A man who was functioning like a cow in Daniel chapter 4. The most powerful rulers, the most powerful nations, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Constantine, Genghis Khan, Joan of Arc, George Washington, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Hussein are all dead and gone while our God is still on his throne today. Do not fear, brothers and sisters, any earthly nation. I don't care what cable news tells you. God is in control over this world. He is in authority over the nations. They are like a drop of water in a bucket before him. Israel needed to hear that as they questioned God's faithfulness to them. He also goes on to tell them about the futility of their idols. If God truly is self-existent, and he does in fact have authority over the nations, who can we compare him to? And the answer is no one and no thing. No metaphor adequately exists for comparing God. But throughout the Old Testament, we know that the Israelites, it wasn't enough for them to just believe in faith. They wanted to see something. And so they constantly fall prey to idols. All of the surrounding nations around them had idols and false gods. The Philistines had Dagon. The Moabites had Chemosh. The Babylonians had Marduk. The Canaanites had Baal. And Isaiah reminds the people here in chapter 40 that idols are ultimately constructed with human hands. You need someone else to build an idol. You need materials in order to craft that idol, whether it be gold or silver or wood. You need a steady and secure base so that it will not be moved. One biblical scholar in his book about idolatry sums up the whole Bible's understanding of idolatry with this phrase. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or for restoration. Throughout the Old Testament, every time Israel turned to an idol, every time they looked to a false god, it was always for their ruin. It always destroyed them. In the context of our passage here, the ruin was the destruction of the temple and being forced out of their homeland in Jerusalem into Babylon. But this principle of idolatry applies to us as well. When we turn our hearts from the Lord and put our allegiance in idols, whatever they might be, career, family, money, material possessions, our bodies, whatever it is, it always leads to ruin. All of these things are in competition with God himself, which is why when Tim Keller wrote his book called Counterfeit Gods, which is addressing the issue of idolatry, he brings before us these questions that I often use to consider what idols are creeping up in my own heart. And here are those questions. Number one, what do you daydream about? 
What do you fear the most? What makes you uncontrollably angry, anxious, or despondent? And as you begin thinking to yourself about those questions, it's very possible that you'll begin to identify some of the idols that you must resist and wrestle against as you are trying to faithfully keep God the top priority in your life. Isaiah tells the people, these idols that you construct, they are man-made. They are made of things from this earth that God himself created. God gives gold and silver and wood and stone. God created these individuals that crafted these idols that you are in fact worshiping. Idols ultimately are futile. They lead to destruction and ruin always for God's people. And finally we see in this passage God's transcendence over his creation. Now transcendent is the idea that God exercises both control and authority over his creation. So this image Isaiah gives us is God sitting on his throne and looking down on us as if we are grasshoppers. This is supposed to indicate to us the largeness of the God whom we serve. But we should not look at this and think that God is some impersonal force or some being that just sits on his throne but doesn't really care about what happens. That's why we argue that God is both transcendent but he is also imminent, meaning that he desires personal relationship with human beings. Yes, God is independent of his creation. He does not need us in order to survive, but he is in fact imminent. So while he exercises authority and control over us, he does so in a personal and a covenantal way, which we find in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, when Moses tells us that God said, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of Egyptians. There are possessive pronouns being used in this passage. I'm going to take you to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. This is not a reference to an impersonal being who just sits up in heaven, created everything, and lets things go about as they should. He cares. He's involved. Israel is the perfect expression of that in the Old Testament. But Isaiah's description here is focusing on God's transcendence, his authority, and his control over all of his creation. We're told here in the passage, he stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Whatever is planted only remains planted through God giving it life and sustaining it. If God doesn't want my grass to grow, it's not going to grow. As disappointing as that is to me. No matter how much I exhaust on fertilizers and water. If God doesn't want my grass to grow, it's not going to grow. Consider the largeness of God for a moment. I took this from Andrew Wilson's book, 
that he wrote about the attributes of God. Here's one example. On August 20th, 1977, eight years before I was born, Voyager 2, the interplanetary probe, launched to observe and transmit back to Earth data about the outer planetary system. It set off from Earth, traveling faster than the speed of a bullet, 90,000 miles per hour. On August 28, 1989, so 12 years later, it reached Neptune, 2,700 million miles from the Earth. Then Voyager 2 left the solar system, and it will not come within one light year of any star for 958 I can't, it's too big of a number. Hold on. 958,000 years. In our galaxy, there are 100 million stars like our sun. Our galaxy is one, our galaxy is one of 100 million galaxies. And in the book of Genesis, in a very subtle line, in chapter 1, Moses tells us he also made the stars. Now consider, if that doesn't blow you away, not only God's vastness and his largeness by which he created, but the intricate details by which he creates. The human brain is known for its staggering complexity and ability to process Tons of information. It's hundred billion neurons and several hundred trillion synaptic connections can process and exchange large amounts of information over a distributed network of brain tissue in a matter of milliseconds. Such massive parallel processing capacity permits our brains to analyze complex images in one-tenth of a second, allowing us to visually experience the richness of the world. Likewise, the storage capacity of the human brain is nearly infinite. During our lifetime, our brain will have amassed 10 to the 9th to 10 to the 20th bits of information, which is more, by the way, than 50,000 times the amount of text contained in the U.S. Library of Congress, or more than five times the amount of the total printed material in the entire world. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Isaiah said, look up and see what God has created. Never forget what God has done and how he rules over his creation Israel was doubting God. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? They felt neglected, left alone in exile. They looked at their circumstances, and they assumed God didn't care. They forgot who God was. When we doubt God's love for us, or doubt that God cares about us, It's never that God forgot about us. It's never that God doesn't love us. 
It's that we forgot him. We forgot who he was. We forgot that he is always the God who is faithful to his providences or his promises. So Isaiah reminds us with this beautiful description of God in verses 28 through 31. I want to read it again. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is what? Unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Israel needed to remember who God was. He is the God who never tires. As human beings, we only have so much to give before we fall out with exhaustion. There's a reason that we sleep at night. Because our bodies have to recover. They are not designed to function without it. I was watching an interview this week with Nick Saban after he retired. One of the interviewers asked him, why is now the time? He said, when I was younger, I could get home from work at 2 a.m. and be back at 6 a.m. And I had all the energy in the world to do it. But I can't do it anymore. Because we're not designed to function on autopilot for our entire being. Emotionally, mentally, physically, we grow tired and weary because we have not been designed to process information that way. 24 hours a day, seven days a week without resting. But here's the deal. There is someone who is that way, God. He never grows weary. He never tires. He's never burned out. He never has too many burdens to where he can't carry them. So we don't need to feel bad when we go to God with our burdens and with our concerns as if he's annoyed with us or as if he's not able to handle all of our burdens because he is. This is the God that we serve. Even people who appear to be like the Energizer Bunny eventually crash. Every marathon runner is ready to see the finish line. God is not that way. He never grows weary. He never tires. So what do we do then when we feel overwhelmed, anxious, depressed, weary? The answer is counterintuitive to what the world would have us to believe we should do. Here's what the text says. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. So we wait. We trust We remember that not only will God remain faithful to his covenant promises, as we learned last week, but he can remain faithful to his covenant promises. And you know why he can? Because he is God. He is perfect in every way. All-knowing, all-loving, all-merciful, all-gracious, perfectly just and righteous and holy. He can do it because he is self-existent, because he has authority over the nations, because idols are futile, and because of his transcendence over creation. Expand your vision today of the greatness and the largeness of our God. This is who we worship. If you are in Christ today, know this. God will sustain you. 
His Spirit resides in you to provide comfort, peace, joy, no matter what life might bring. For those not in Christ today, I urge you to come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Because idols, whatever they might be, cannot fulfill you. They cannot sustain you. And most importantly, they do not have the power to offer forgiveness of sin. The attribute of God's love is best expressed in the person of his son who came to die for our sin. Sin apart from faith in Christ and repentance leads to eternal destination apart from God in hell. But life with Christ leads to hope, peace, joy. Israel needed to be reminded in this passage. Even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of wondering, does God really care? Chapter 40 reminds us that not only will he care and provide, but he can. Both of those are important, brothers and sisters. We need to believe in faith that God's covenant promises are true, but we also need to be reminded throughout Scripture of the attributes of who God is. That not only should we believe in faith that he will do it, but that he can do it because of who he is. That is Isaiah's encouragement to us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this marvelous passage which reminds us how big you are, how great you are, The nations are like a drop in the bucket to you. You could hold all of the water of the earth in the hollow of your hand. The mountains and the hills show the vastness of who you are. And yet in the midst of your transcendence, you are also imminent with your creation. Meaning you care about us individually. You desire relationship with us, expressed through your son's death and resurrection. So, as we conclude our time together today, may we be reminded of your greatness. May we be reminded of your love and your grace and your mercy. May your word take root in our hearts. May we be transformed by what we've read this morning. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen.